Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard Al, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my extensive catalog of more than 130 awesome interviews and listen on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimonial of the recovery available to all in AA. And if you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Today is an encore episode of my interview with Amanda B. from September 2021. Amanda got sober in February 2018. For today's interview, I'm pleased to welcome Amanda B. to the show. Like many of my other guests, Amanda's first experience with alcohol was in early adolescence. Half a bottle of Crown Royal left her sick and passed out on the bathroom floor in a pool of vomit. Yet she could not wait to do it again with any liquor but Crown Royal. From there, she rapidly progressed in her drinking and drug use. By 15, she had escaped her childhood home and went to live with a drug-dealing boyfriend. When that didn't work out, she moved in with her grandparents, but drugs and alcohol barged back into Amanda's life, and she soon found herself on a downward trend into heavy drinking. She went to work in a bar, which allowed her to drink more, with little consequences, save the occasional firing. She somehow managed to live on her own in an apartment across the street from the bar to cut down the risk of DWI. But the darkness of the disease descended into her life, and by her late 20s, she had lost about everything and had to live with her sister, the first person to ever call her an alcoholic. A DWI led her into the legal system, replete with court-ordered IOP treatment and twice-weekly AA meetings. It was in Alcoholics Anonymous that Amanda finally faced her alcoholism and drug addiction, though she didn't get sober immediately. But that bellyful of booze and head full of AA was sufficient to trigger her moment of truth. She had a sudden spiritual experience of the kind Bill W. talks about in the big book. That was three and a half years ago, when Amanda went all in the program of AA. She got a sponsor, worked all 12 steps multiple times, attended regular meetings, engaged in service work, and sponsored other women. Today she lives a full and rich life from the center of the program and can be seen after meetings arranging for informal get-togethers at local restaurants and other fellowship. I've known her since the earliest days of her sobriety and am grateful to have had a front-row seat watching this fellow alcoholic really get what AA is all about. Amanda's story at three years sober will inspire those with less time to stay regularly engaged in AA. For those with more time, her stories may make you reminisce of early years in sobriety. So, for newcomers, old-timers, and everyone in between, settle back for a comfortable listen to the 46th interview in this podcast series with my good friend and AA sister, Amanda B. Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for being here today. You and I have known each other uh, probably for the last four or five years now, haven't we? Yes, it's actually less than four or five years. I think I met you when I was about nine months sober, and I had the courage to walk into a church meeting for the first time. Oh, that was your first church meeting ever? <laughs> it was one of them. Wow. So what's your sobriety date? My sobriety date is February 18th, 2018. So I'm over the three and a half year hump, which is so crazy to say out loud. 
That's amazing. Well, I remember when you came into that meeting, you were a regular there for, for quite a while. And then I started seeing you at our Saturday evening meeting, which not only did you become a regular, but you were also kind of the social person afterwards, always asking people where they wanted to fellowship and go to dinner. And I thought that that was so great because on a Saturday evening at 7 o'clock, after an AA meeting is over, what do you do? And uh, you always had people going out to restaurants and other things to fellowship. I think that's really marvelous. What gave you that idea? Well, you know, when I got sober, I left behind all of my party friends. And that first year, I was still so anxious and nervous. And I never went to any fellowship um, opportunities because I didn't know anybody. Uh-huh. Um, but in that Saturday night meeting, it was on Saturday night at seven o'clock. And It made me depressed to go home and do nothing after that. So I'm like, you know what? This is a small enough meeting. I felt really comfortable there. I just love that meeting so much. Um, And I felt like, why not invite this group of awesome people to go out and enjoy each other's company and have some yummy food? And so we would all, Barbara and I would argue about um, (laughs) which restaurant to go to and I'd usually get my way, so that worked out. But it was really fun and, um, you know, still still making friendships that just over a year sober, like, I needed that. I still need that, that fellowship. Um, the book talks about that we crave that fellowship. Yeah, we really do. And you not only created a, a real fellowship for people after the meeting to hang out, but whenever this COVID thing got started... You were ready to go with the Zoom for our group and the Zoom that you helped coordinate got going much sooner than a lot of other Zoom groups did. And we were within just a couple of weeks, we were already meeting on Zoom, our our small group. So your service work being the Zoom host and making sure that everything went smoothly, I think, was terrific service work. Where did you learn how to do that service work? Um, Thanks. It was a great opportunity to be of service and my higher power positioned me perfectly with a Zoom account through my job who let me use it for, I worked at a treatment center. So they said, if you have any meetings that you want to use it for, I'm like, I do. Um, So I was able to step right in to be of service. But to answer your question, uh, my first sponsor um, in the program really drove home the service work. And it wasn't just program service work. um, It was other service work too. So she invited me um, early on. I was maybe three or four months sober. Mm -hmm. And she invited me to go to this um, barbecue that they have for homeless people. And I was like, well, I need to get out of the house. I'm just going to go because that's really not, it wasn't up my alley at that point. Mm -hmm. And I went and I just had the best time. And I mean, I was just talking to people, getting them to play cornhole and just having a good time. Um, and after that was over, she said, wasn't that fun? I said, yeah, I just felt so genuine. Mm-hmm. And so um, that really stuck in my mind. And then um, she drove home like any opportunity you see to be of service, take it. And so also I was struggling with anxiety really bad at first. And I figured out if I'm in a small group of people, like um, I started going to church and mm-hmm. I would go to these small groups 
And I was so nervous. I was like sweating and shaking when they would call on me to say something. Mm -hmm. And I figured out that if I could find a way to be of service, that took the pressure off. And so I started serving cake, serving drinks, arranging chairs, (laughs) um, (laughs) anything to get the focus off of me. And that has stuck with me. And now I find so much joy in being of service just in every situation that I'm in. So that's a part of the, that what I learned in the program that's translated into all areas of my life. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that too, because there have been some people who I've interviewed over this, this podcast series who have spoken about the importance of service work to help them maintain their level of spiritual connectedness, connection to other people, and certainly keep them in the center of the program and whether it's helping people fellowship after a meeting or setting up chairs or serving cake or being the facilitator of a Zoom meeting, I can see how that could be very, very helpful to your sobriety. What do you think sobriety would have been like without that? Um, without service work, I think sobriety uh, would have been I mean, filled with more anxiety. When I'm in service or being of service, I'm outside of myself. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about other people. Mm-hmm. And when I'm not being of service, I'm thinking about me and I'm thinking about everyone that's thinking about me. And it, it just increases anxiety and unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really finding those opportunities to be of service just helps get me out of myself. That's so important, especially since the disease of alcoholism is a disease of self-centeredness and selfishness. And being of service is selfless. It's helpful. It's uh, really a blessing to any group to have somebody working the service end of things. Have you always been that kind of person during your life? Were you always the one who was helping out or was your alcoholism keeping you from that kind of behavior? So I grew up in a big-ish family. Mm -hmm. I have um, three siblings that we were raised in the same house. And so I, I'm the second oldest. Mm-hmm. And so I was always a helper in my family of origin. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, uh, that went by the wayside. It was not a conscious skill mm-hmm. that I had. Um, so I, the program really made me conscious of the benefits of service work. So you've mentioned a little bit about your family of origin. What was your home life like uh, in your family of origin? And in what ways might that have kind of put you on the path that you went on with uh, alcoholism and and drug abuse? Yeah. So my very early years um, were really tumultuous. My parents got divorced when I was six months old. Um, Mom got remarried when I was two years old. Mm -hmm. And thank God uh, my my first stepdad was a re- he was a really good man um and he he worked mm-hmm, hard mm-hmm. and provided what he could for our family um but where the mm-hmm. the alcohol piece comes in he was not a big drinker but my my grandfather is a big drinker and that whole side of the family um every family event revolved around alcohol and so like hmm. at our christmases we were the family that takes tequila shots and you know my mom looked at me sideways when I didn't take a drink on my 18th birthday. I can't tell you why I didn't. I I think it was during the day and I didn't want to get tired for the afternoon because I had a party that night or something. I don't know. Uh But so there's that aspect that that drinking is a way of life. 
I couldn't even imagine a life without alcohol in it. And I have one memory of my first, one of my first drinks. I know I had my first drink mm-hmm. very early on because there's a picture of me at like probably three years old drinking the last of a beer can. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it was funny at the time, but now <laughs> down the road, you look back and you're like, oh, maybe that was not a good idea. Um, and then uh, at seven years old, uh, my dad had made some margaritas. And I remember he gave me and my sister one. And I guess I was acting goofy and I asked him for more. And he goes, you're already drunk. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, looking back, like I was and I wanted more. Um, Mm. and then I have another memory of when I was, uh, 13, a little girlfriend that I had, we, uh, got a a Mm. bottle of liquor and my parents challenged us to try to finish the bottle in one night. And so we did. And I woke up in a pool of vomit and I could never drink that specific liquor again, but from the very first drink. I've always had that. I want more. That is an incredible story that your parents uh, challenged you and your friend to drink. What do you think was behind that challenge? What what were they? What was it just that it was funny or cute or do you have any idea why? So it was actually uh, Crown Royal, which still makes my stomach turn when I say it. Um, and you know, I couldn't tell you why I'm sure I had a little teenage attitude and I was like, I can drink or I don't know what exactly happened. Um, but again, drinking was a way of life. And so they probably, Mm. they probably thought, Oh, they're here at the house. We're here. They'll be fine. And we were fine, except that I woke up in a pool of vomit and I can never drink that liquor again. Now, did that experience with waking up that way, did you black out or do you remember the night before? Do you remember much of what happened? Yeah, I remember um, a lot of what happened. I don't know how I ended up um, in the in the bathroom. I was in the bathroom when I woke up and then right. um, I couldn't move for a little while. And I guess I was making some noises because my mom came and found me. Uh huh. What did you tell yourself after that experience? Uh, obviously, you said you wanted more, but after that experience, did you tell yourself you still wanted more? Yes. Something different than Crown Royal? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was at 13. Would you say that that was really the beginning of your drinking by choice? Did you actually start at 13 or, or does it skip ahead a few years until you started drinking on your own? Yeah, I guess. I mean, my my story has outside substances in it. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a period of that only because of my age. Um, if I would have been able to purchase my own alcohol, I would have. So until I found the right people and a fake ID, um, I was, uh, I used other, uh, substances, but, um, probably Mm -hmm. when I turned 17, I could easily get access to alcohol. Um, and it really took off then. Yeah. So was your use of alcohol kind of an extension of the use of the drugs or did you continue the drugs with the alcohol or did one hand off to the next? Uh, So I consider alcohol my primary substance of choice Uh because I like the way it makes me feel and um, and it's easily accessible and it can be 
fun or dressed up. Um, whereas Mm -hmm. the other substances are secondary because I wouldn't take other substances out of fear of what's in them. Um, unless Mm -hmm. I was drinking first. So the alcohol use did in a way fuel additional use of drugs, but not necessarily the other way around, huh? Right. Did you have any consequences from your drinking early on? Were you running with a group that was drinking? What was your experience like with that? Yeah, consequences. Um, Some major ones I had, I lost a scholarship um, to college. Mm. Um, I started as pre-med at U of H and, um, I discovered clubs and decided to use a fake ID. I was only, um, 16 when I started college, but at 17, I started going out to clubs and drinking. And the next morning I'd be like, I just, I'm not going to class. And so, you know, week after week, what does that equate to? Um, I missed assignments. I missed classes. My grades plummeted. I lost my scholarship. So that was one major one. So you were in college at 16. Uh You must have been really, really uh, ahead of the game and pretty smart to be able to do that. So I don't consider myself smart. I consider myself a hard worker because I didn't skip any grades. I just worked really hard in summer school and classes by correspondence Mm -hmm. through Texas Tech and UT. And then I was able to graduate early. So I just applied myself and focused um, so that I could get on to college. Really, I just wanted to get Mm -hmm. out of my uh, parents' house and go, you know, be an adult and do whatever I wanted. I wanted my freedom. Hmm. What were things like at home that made you want to get out of there at that point? You've talked about when you were 13. What was it like before you actually got out of the house? So when I was 12, my mom divorced my first stepdad and um, Uh we moved in with her new boyfriend. And the new boyfriend was great before we moved in with him. He would buy us groceries and take us to do fun things. And then we moved in with him and he flipped. So um, he became... Uh, um, abusive, verbally abusive to me, physically abusive to my mom and my sister. And so I had to get out of there. In fact, I told my mom uh, when I was 15, I was still in high school. I told my mom um, that either she was going to let me leave and go uh, move in with my drug dealer boyfriend, or I was going Mm -hmm. to leave anyways and not talk to her anymore. And so she let me leave which that's a tough situation for a 15 year old to be in. Uh, Do I stay in this Mm. abusive household? um, Or do I go live with my drug dealer boyfriend who can provide what I need and I'll have a little more peace and not get abused by him and he'll supply all Mm -hmm. my drugs. What a choice that was for you. You went to live with him and he helped support your drug usage. Would you call it a drug habit at that point? I would uh, because... It was on the weekends. At that point, I Uh was keeping it at the weekends. During the week, I would focus on school to finish out my high school. And so during the week, I was really focused. I had a little job at Chick-fil-A, my first job ever. Uh They teach very good manners at at Chick-fil-A, by the way. They do. And they'll fire you in a heartbeat if they find out you're on drugs. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) I don't remember doing a drug test for them, you know, but that was ages ago. So that was a long time. I don't really remember doing a drug test if I did or not. Um, But yeah, I would keep my uh, drug usage to the weekends. Mm -hmm. And that was when I started incorporating more alcohol because this boyfriend was older. He was 21. And so 
yeah. I could get him to get alcohol for us. I see. So by the time you started living with him and he not only provided the drugs, but the alcohol, would you say you were becoming a functional alcoholic or were things falling apart more quickly than that? Well, things were falling apart pretty quickly. I mean, I look back and I, I'm amazed that I made it, um, you know, I finished high school early and started college with a scholarship. That's incredible given the circumstances. Um, but once I got to college and had my freedom, it went downhill really quickly. Hmm. Did you continue to live with him while you were going to college? I did for the first semester. Uh -huh. And then I started hanging out with a, a girlfriend of mine and I started staying mm -hmm. at her place more. And then just things weren't good with him. So I, when I turned 18, I um, got a job at a, at a bar and mm -hmm. um, it was awesome. I could drink all day long. <laughs> And that's when that's when I officially dropped out of school and just decided to to work there instead and got my own apartment and thought I was all grown up. I'm, I'm curious about that uh, job because I've had a number of people on the show who have followed the somewhat of the same trajectory where things seem to be going pretty well. But then they just made the conscious decision that they'd rather be in a position where they could drink all the time and not have to worry about class or any other considerations. When you were working in that bar, what were your ambitions? Did you want to go back to school or what were you thinking when you were in that bar? I was trying to manage. I was trying to, to go to at first, trying to go to school and work at the bar. Mm. And then I would wake up right. so hungover and be like, I'm just going to work at the bar. Mm -hmm. Were you making pretty good money at the time? Oh, yeah. I was making really good money. I mean, especially for being that young. I mean, my mom never made a whole lot of money. Neither did my dad. So seeing that kind of money coming in was definitely um, an influence on my decision. Did you experience any problems or difficulties while you were working at the bar related to alcohol and drugs? Oh, yeah. I got fired a couple times uh, for being uh, for drinking. I was underage. So I would drink and there were a couple times that they fired me and then they let me come back. So that that was probably the biggest consequences I had at that point in time. I really flew under the radar. I lived right across the street from the bar. So that made, um, you know, driving under the influence minimally risky. It was one block away. <laughs> Wow. So you had the opportunity without even having to get in a car of drinking with impunity, as they say in the big book. Do you recall any feelings that your drinking was getting out of control and that you might have to do something about it? Or were you just sailing along uh, doing what you wanted to do? So I remember um, a specific conversation I had when I was 22 years old. Um, mm -hmm. I was at this point living with my grandparents, um, trying to go back. I was back in school and I went out like two nights in a row and I remember, um, drinking vodka out of a plastic bottle. And I think I had filled up my plastic bottle with my grandparents vodka, um, because I was 22 and a student and I wasn't working at the bar anymore and didn't have money to, af uh -huh. to afford drinks. So, um, yeah. I just remember drinking it the whole night I was out, um, the second for the second night. And then when I got mm -hmm. home, I kept drinking straight vodka out of this plastic bottle until I passed out. And the mm -hmm. next morning 
I had a little job at a boutique and the next morning I had to call in. And when I went downstairs, I had this conversation with my grandma and she's like, why are you not at work? And I'm like, Hmm. I'm really hungover. And she's like, I hope you didn't tell them that. I was like, I did. (laughs) And she's like, Amanda, I was like, I know, I really think I have a problem. And she goes, I think so too. And that was that. That was the end of the conversation. There was no, hey, I've heard of this program called AA or anything like that, which she had. Remind you, her husband is an alcoholic. So she's an Al-Anon, but she doesn't know it. She still doesn't know it. Right, I get it. Yeah, so there was no solution there. Um, And, you know, Mm -hmm. as an alcoholic left to our own devices, we're not going to make it. So you went from being at the bar to living at your grandparents to go back to school. Was that a conscious decision you made or something that came after you were fired for the last time and needed to do something else? Well, I met a boy and and he um, he happened to be a, a really good, good person. And he influenced yeah. me to get an education and, and he influenced me to move back in with my grandparents as, you know, this is a way to set yourself up for success in the future. And I know it's not ideal, um, but you should go stay with your grandparents. It's really close to school. It's, you don't have to pay rent. They actually gave me money for groceries every week too. So that helped. Uh Yeah. So they were really trying to help me get out of this rut that I was in. And, and I was encouraged by this guy I met to get out of the bar scene and, and get back into school and try to make something with my life. Hmm. So what were the school years like while you were living with your grandparents? Um, I didn't live with my grandparents for too long. Mm-hmm. I broke up with the guy and I went back to the bar. Um, but this time I was managing school and drinking um, I had just dropped the the drugs out of my life, but the constant here is alcohol. So I kept drinking, um, but somehow managed to make it through college. Yeah, so I graduated, um, I studied international business, um, and I graduated um, when I was 24. So okay. I like to think that's not that far behind. Well, given what you were going through at the time, <laughs> you started at 16 and ended at 24. That's well, that's about an eight-year education. Yeah. But So you're at 24, you've graduated, you've essentially replaced the drugs with alcohol, and sounds to me like you were a pretty functional alcoholic if you could complete your studies and get, and get a degree. Yeah, yeah, um, I guess so. It's hard to believe that because that's not what it looked like at the end of my drinking career. Um, I was Uh barely functioning, but that's the progression of the disease. So what happens to your life after you graduate? You're 24 years old. That kind of led you down that road towards alcoholism to the extent that you needed to go to AA. Yeah. So after college, um, I did an internship in Argentina for several months. And I had this little apartment there in this really cool hipster neighborhood. And there were bars all around me. And (laughs) I was in heaven. I could go to these cool little bars and drink to my heart's content. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of my internship while I was there, as you can imagine. (laughs) I just went out (laughs) and drank and then slept in the next day and ate all the Mm -hmm. delicious food that they make in Argentina. 
Mm-hmm. And then I came back because both of my sisters were pregnant and having babies, um, with, within a few months of each other. Uh-huh. So I came back and it was hard to find a job fresh out of college and, you know, having a bar, a mm-hmm. bar on my resume, which I conveniently left off of my resume. And so while I was in college, I also did uh, modeling and trade show work. Mm-hmm. And so I started picking up um, customers for um, marketing materials and cold calling kind of sales work that they didn't want to hire someone for, but I would pick up these, these little projects. Um, so I did that for a while, which was great because then I could drink however late I wanted and then sleep in and then do my work. So I got to make my own schedule. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't have made it at a full-time job had I had one. Hmm. So you got to schedule your drinking around the job or uh, only drink after hours? Or did you ever drink while you were on the job? Uh, yeah, sometimes with clients, I'd go meet them out for happy hour. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I always knew it wasn't just a happy hour. Like if I'm going to happy hour, I'm going to be out all night. And it, it never failed. It never failed. If I went to happy, I might, you know, leave the, the clients I was with, but go with other friends out somewhere else. And then the next day pay for it. And then I'd be behind in, in my planned work. Um, but I was able mm-hmm. to keep that up for a good while, um, because I had that mm. flexibility. So you were kind of putting together your own schedule, working when you wanted. Did, did you have that kind of, uh, flexibility? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would schedule meetings in the afternoons on purpose because I knew I would be hung over <laughs> in the morning and not able to get up and do the meeting. <laughs> When did you notice or did you notice alcohol and your drinking taking a toll on your life, either physically or emotionally or spiritually? So I hadn't noticed it yet, but I had a neighbor when I was 27. Mm-hmm. I had this neighbor who had this beautiful dog and I have dogs. And so I met him out walking dogs in our little apartment dog park. And he would talk to me about... um this fellowship that he was a part of. And this guy was always happy and smiling and glowing. And I'm like, why is this guy so happy? And so, (laughs) and he was so warm and kind. And, um, and he would tell me about this fellowship that, that he would go to. And, and eventually I put two and two together and I figured out it was AA. And cause he told me he hadn't drank in four years. And I was like, four years. How is that even possible? (laughs) And so he invited me, he invited me probably three, maybe three times. Um, because I would always tell him like, Oh man, I'm so hung over today. I have the biggest headache. I would ask him to bring me water or juice or whatever when I couldn't get out of bed. And so he invited me about three times And I remember saying like, oh, I want to go, but not today, maybe another time. Mm -hmm. And I think he gave up after a few times of asking me, he was like, she's not ready yet. Um, But Mm. I say that was my higher power sending a life raft and I didn't take it. I had to go further down. Mm -hmm. So here's a guy who introduces you to AA was it that you just felt like you didn't have a problem or couldn't relate to what he was doing? Um, at that point, I knew that my drinking was a little much. 
Um, which is why I would tell him I want to go just not today. Cause I did want to go. I wanted to check it out and see what it's about. I, you know, I couldn't, I did never thought that I would be able to be sober for four years, but I was curious about it. And there was huh. just a tiny little seed of openness there. It just wasn't ready to flourish yet. Did he ever ask you that $64,000 question that we ask people? Do you feel like you have a drinking problem or do you want to stop drinking? No, he never he never asked um, if I think I have a mm. drinking problem that I remember. And I think I would remember because one time my sister told me a little further down the road from this story at 27, she straight up told me, you're an alcoholic. And I remember it hurting me. It hurt so bad. Um, and I was so ashamed. And um, and I, I don't remember feeling that ever with him. He was so kind and like gentle and just invited me to come along. And, you know, he would come talk to me when I'm hungover. I would hide from him in the parking lot because we had this parking garage. And uh -huh. I remember like, when I was hungover, I would try to hide from him so he couldn't see me walk in to say hi because I was so ashamed I was hungover again. Uh, when your sister told you that, what was behind what she was saying? Did she cite behavior on your part that she determined made you an alcoholic? What was your understanding of what she said when she told you you were an alcoholic? What was she seeing? So my sister is a nurse and she had just finished nursing school and she had been to one AA meeting. So uh, she um, uh, she recognized the craving and she recognized that once I took a drink, I was going to drink the whole bottle. Um, and also at that time, um, this is when I start. I was hitting, I was hitting my bottom at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually had moved in with her. I was not functioning anymore. I went back to work at the bar just to make ends meet. And I ended up getting a DWI one night, my first DWI first and only, thank God. <laughs> um, and so the judge put me in this, I violated twice on my pretrial supervision, um, and at this point I was on a bunch of different pills and alcohol. So before my urinalysis tests, I would drink the stuff that would get rid of the, that would cover up the other stuff in, in the urine test, but I didn't know that it didn't cover up alcohol. And so <laughs> okay. I got caught. <laughs> and so I violated twice on pretrial supervision. And so when it came time, um, the judge said this was nine months after I got arrested the judge said, Hey, I really think this girl can benefit from the DPTI program, mm -hmm. um, which it has you jump through several hoops. One is you go to IOP. One is you, mm -hmm. you go to AA. Um, and I, I don't mm -hmm. remember the others. And so if you jump through all the hoops successfully and you don't mess up again for two years, your case will be dismissed. And I was like, yes, please. I'll take it. <laughs> um, Wow. So I did that, but I had moved back in with my sister um, after getting the DWI because my life was just totally unmanageable. Um, I couldn't support myself anymore. And she needed help with her daughter mm -hmm. babysitting, which mm -hmm. actually didn't work out either because I was always too drunk to babysit. So. Oh, boy. Yeah. Did she trust you with babysitting? She did trust me with babysitting until um, I wasn't able to show up like she needed me to and, and be trustworthy like she needed me to be. I see. 
So you're 27, you're living with your sister, you've had the DWI, you've been ordered to to do this uh, DPTI. And did you start to attend AA meetings as part of that? Yeah. So I was actually 29 at this point, um, Uh which um, is important to me Mm -hmm. because I always told myself that in my 20s, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. I'm going to travel the world, drink as much as I want, do all the substances I want. And if I'm still alive, Mm -hmm. if I'm still alive at 30, I'm going to straighten up. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't realize how hard it would be to quit all that stuff. (laughs) That sounds like a real plan, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit convoluted, but a plan nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so I'm living with my sister. I'm 29. I started going to AA meetings, um, in November of 2017. I remember part of the, the PTI program required me to go to, I think it was two or three meetings a week for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And so I would do that. And after the meeting, I, felt like I had a choice whether I was going to drink or not. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I figured out four days before you have a urinalysis test is when you have to stop drinking so that it doesn't show in the test. So I started, I started going to AA meetings four days in a row leading up to my test so I could pass my test and then I would drink again. So it was a scheduled test, not a random. Yeah. And they did random sometimes, but luckily I, I evaded that somehow. I think I got called once for a random and somehow got out of it. So you were able to play the system there for a little while, huh? For a little while. That is not sustainable. I'm not recommending that to anyone. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Earlier you mentioned that you were rapidly approaching your bottom. What did your bottom look like? And what do you remember about the days prior to hitting that bottom? Well, let's see. I mean, the prior to hitting that bottom um, was having to live with my sister at 29 years old, not able to support myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a breathalyzer in my car, which is so embarrassing. Um, You know, I didn't have any money, even though I was back working at the bar and making a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but it was all going to debts and the courts. And um, my life was just completely unmanageable. And then my sister when she said that about me being an alcoholic and it hurts so bad. And then when, what she said about the craving that struck a chord, I was like, I didn't say it out loud at the time because I didn't want her to be right. Mm -hmm. So, So, but when she said that, 
about the craving after you have the first drink, you have a craving for more. I'm like, that's me. Um, so deep down there was that. And then, um, starting AA, I don't know, I guess in that, in that six weeks, I heard what I needed to hear. I remember trying to do it on my own for the next couple months. I remember the first AA meeting I went to where I didn't have to get my paper signed and I made sure everybody in the room knew that. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> was that six months getting it signed? No, it was so six weeks of getting it signed, which is not that long. So after that, I started going to meetings on my own um, without a, a requirement because I liked how I felt when I left the meetings. I liked the the peace that I got and just like hugs. There were no hugs in my life. And just having having people come up to me and hug me and tell me it's going to be okay, like, I needed that. And then leading up to, I still hadn't quit drinking. I still hadn't asked for a sponsor. I was trying to do it on my own. I tried to look up the 12 steps, like a workbook online. And I don't know why I couldn't find it. So I was still trying to do it on my own. But, um, I remember someone said in a meeting, if you want to get sober, just ask God to get you sober. And so I started doing that. As soon as I would wake up, I would just sit up and I didn't know I didn't have a higher power at this point. I was agnostic. Uh-huh. I thought maybe there's something. I mean, there's probably something, but that's way too big for my little mind to comprehend. Um, so I just did what they said. I sat up in bed and I prayed to the ceiling and I was like, God, please get me sober. And I just, I just meant sober off of alcohol. I wasn't ready to give up the pills yet, but the pills went first. They did. Uh huh. Yeah. A month before um, my sobriety date from alcohol, um, I got sober from the pills. I went through withdrawal. I didn't go to a detox center or anything. Again, don't don't recommend that to anyone. It was miserable and painful. Uh huh. But I needed to go through that so that I remember how awful it was. Were those opioids that you were detoxing? From? Yes. Wow, that's tough. Mm-hmm. And you did that on your own. Yes. That must have been miserable. It was very miserable. Um, and then I was also on Adderall, um, which I have the same sobriety date. The day that I got sober from alcohol, I also got sober from Adderall. So you did it all at once then, huh? Yeah. That's amazing. What was it like when you went to your first meetings? You said you felt a lot better leaving than you did going in. And to me, that's a that's a sign of a good AA meeting when people feel better walking out than they did when, when going in. What did you notice about the people? Did, did, you, did you make friends? Were there women that approached you? What was that like? So at this point, um, I, was, I was still not comfortable with women. Uh, I, I didn't trust them. As most women that come into AA are. We just don't trust other women. Yeah. Um, it takes a while for that to happen. But I was going to Lambda and all the gay guys were so nice to me and I loved them and they were great. And um, I just remember walking into into meetings and, you know, the glow that, that that neighbor of mine had. All of these people had that glow. And I'm like, what is this? And they're smiling and laughing. And I'm like are they really sober? Mm. How can you be so happy sober? I didn't, I didn't get it, but I didn't care. I only cared about what I felt like after, 
I left the meeting. I felt better, and I had a choice whether I was going to drink or not that night. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the Lambda Club, I've known a number of women over the years who have you know, become regulars at their meetings. You mentioned that it's an issue for women, other women. What, what were you noticing about the women in AA that became so difficult? that uh, gave you concern? Um, So I wouldn't say that I had concerns about the women in AA. Um, Everyone was so kind and nice and went way out of their way to help me. It was me and my trust level of other women had been so, I mean, destroyed, um, you know, based on these unhealthy relationships that I'd I'd had with women, um, Uh you know, throughout my life. And so that was my stuff that I carried in the rooms. It was not the women in the rooms. Um, And it it took me a long time. And I still struggle with that. I I still struggle making friends with women in the program. Um, But it's something that I'm very aware of and working on um, and healing. There's healing that's happening. So it just takes time. I get that. So tell me about your first sponsor. Did you get a sponsor right away or how long did it take? It sounds to me like you were trying to work the program yourself for a period of time. How long did you do that before you finally got yourself a sponsor? So it was about four months um, of coming to AA, trying to do it on my own, promising, begging and pleading God to help me go into a bar and not drink. That didn't work. Um, I don't know. I just... It was on February 16th of 2018. There was a woman that led this meeting Uh and I can, I consider her my temporary sponsor because my first real sponsor comes later. But I asked her on on February 16th, I went up to her right after the meeting and I I said, Hey, I need help. Can you sponsor me? (laughs) And she was like, okay, well, tell me what's going on. I was like, (laughs) okay, I just need help. I can't do this on my own. And so we met two days later Uh um, on February 18th, and I was hungover once again. The night before I had gone into the bar and before I went in, I did, I was, you know, trying to be a good AA Uh and I prayed (laughs) and asked God to keep me sober. And then I walked into a bar. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that that's a not, not supposed to do that in early sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I met with this uh, temporary sponsor on February 18th. I was really hungover and she was like, okay, you're going to start a 90 and 90 and you're going to order the big book right now. Did she know you that you hadn't stopped at that point or did she assume you were sober? I told her that I drank the night before. Okay. Yeah. All right. And, um, and so I said, okay, so this 90 and 90, does that start today? And she's like, yep. (laughs) I'm like, okay. So I go to Lambda, um, that night and I feel awful and, um, I'm sitting at, it's a fairly empty meeting. There's maybe 10, 12 people in there. Mm -hmm. It was a Sunday night. And so there's all these open chairs. It's in the big room over there. There's all all these open chairs Mm -hmm. and this. Of course, glowing once again, this glowing, fabulous woman walks in the door and she comes and sits right next to me. And I'm like, why is she sitting right next to me when there's a ton of other chairs in here? (laughs) (laughs) And so after this meeting, she stayed after and talked to me and she was talking about how her vision changed when she was about four months sober. And for whatever reason, her saying that gave me a lot of hope and I still can't tell you why. Um, it gave me a lot of hope 
Um, but then I, I went home that night and, um, I was just, I was crying. I was desperate. I was desperate. Cause I really, I had really given this thing a shot mm-hmm. on my own. Um, and I just couldn't stop. And so that night I'm just like crying and remind you, I'm still agnostic at this point. And I put, I put my hands out in defeat Yeah. and I'm like, I literally said this out loud. There has to be something greater than me because I can't do this on my own. And at that moment, I had a very intense spiritual experience and my higher power came flooding into my life. I could feel the presence around me and through me, this like warm, comfortableness. And I had like a waterfall of tears and snot come out. And, um, I journaled that night. Uh-huh. So I have a journal from my sobriety date and in my journal, it says, I know it was God. Wow. So God drops this woman in your life. And as a result of that experience, you have the spiritual experience, the kind that Bill Wilson talks about, right? Yes. A sudden, a sudden upheaval. It's page 56 in the big book. That's my favorite page because I was reading it a couple months later. I was reading it and I was like, oh, that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) So yours wasn't one of the gradual of the educational variety. Yours was a sudden realization of a presence greater than yourself. Yes. Yes, it was. And so from that moment, I was all in. And that was what day? February 18th of 2018. So that's your sobriety day. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I had the the temporary sponsor for my first 60 days and I was sitting on step one because she was very busy. Obviously, the program gives us a lot of life. We get to do a lot of things after we're sober. And so this woman was very busy. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting on step one and 60 days sober. I had, I was friends with this woman that sat next to me and told me about vision on my sobriety date. And so at, on day 60, I was a mess and I saw her at a meeting and I told her, I said, if this is what it's like to be sober, I don't want it. Mm. And she said, no, 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 no. Let me sponsor you. Give me a month. And I said, okay. So I notified the other lady that I was going to take her as my official first sponsor Mm -hmm. and work the steps with her. And we got right into the work and um, I had to get through my fourth step as quick as possible because I wasn't going to make it if I didn't. So that was 60 days after your sobriety day that she becomes your sponsor? Yeah, on, on my 60 day birthday. Wow. So you had this sudden spiritual experience. You go back to AA. Were those 60 days, 60 days of struggle for you before you finally got your your permanent sponsor? Yes. What were those days like? Oh, man. You know, I slept a lot. I was um, still withdrawing from the the Adderall stays in your system for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know the half-life, but recovering from Adderall, it takes a, it takes a long time. Um, and so my body was totally exhausted. Hmm. I had no energy. So I slept a lot. I drank a pot of coffee a day. Mm -hmm. I wasn't working at this point. I was selling some of my fancy stuff that I had bought over the years. I was selling so that I could pay my bills, Mm -hmm. um, And I was just staying sober one day at a time. 
Were you going to meetings every day? I was. I was. The 90 and 90, I followed that. Mm. Um, and, and it really, it, that, that kept me sober. But yeah, I just kind of turned into a, I, I isolated. Mm. I cut myself off from everybody except for AA. Um, cause I knew I would go out again if I didn't do that. And so I just fell off the map. Hmm. So this is 60 days into your sobriety. During that period of time, you're feeling isolated. You're feeling alone. You're still going to AA. What was it like having those feelings while you were sitting in the middle of an AA meeting? Um, it was hard. Um, but, you know, at that, that club that I was going to, they were really accepting and just wanted me to check in um, yeah. with how I was doing that day. So I didn't know how to share. I didn't have any program to share at this point other than I'm praying and I'm sober and I'm here. Yeah. Um, but I would share also, you know, the anxiety levels and the shaking and the yeah. I mean, my shares were definitely not filled with experience, strength and hope at this point. Yeah. I kind of identify with you in a way. I know you've heard my story before, but mm -hmm. uh, I didn't get a sponsor until I was sober about 10 months, almost a year. Uh, I was sitting in meetings, seeing people really getting it around me and people that they seemed like their lives were improving while I was still feeling isolated alone because I was trying to do the program my way without a sponsor and without any help or acknowledgement that I couldn't do it myself, you know, but you know, I, I remember what a what a empty feeling that was sitting in meetings, knowing that I wasn't getting what everybody else was getting. And it made me feel like maybe I'll be the first guy to prove that AA doesn't work, you know, or maybe I'll be just one of those lost causes along the way. Did you ever get that feeling when you were sitting in the meetings or, or were you a little bit more hopeful than that? Um, I think I was a little more hopeful because remember that goal that I had, if I made it to 30, I would uh, straighten up. Yeah. So I turned 30 years old uh, uh, at 56 days sober. And so I had this drive that I'm not giving up. Like if all if it worked for all these people, it's going to work for me, too. Yeah. And so I just held out hope and, and I was praying at the time. So I think that helped me a lot. Also at 11 days sober, I met this uh, woman and she talked about the third step prayer. And so while I was not on the third step yet, I had that prayer memorized and I was saying it every day mm -hmm. and that carried me. Wow. So you were going to meetings, you weren't drinking, which are the first two requirements that I think everything else is built off of. You had that spiritual experience. You connected with 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 people in the meetings, though you were somewhat isolated. Uh, but finally, at 60 days, you get this woman who becomes your sponsor. That must have been a big exhale for you at that point. Oh, my gosh. It's a big exhale for me now. Um, she was just this amazing woman, so kind and sweet. And I thought that I thought I was the type of person that needed one of those hard ass sponsors. Mm -hmm. Um but no, I needed someone who was gentle and kind and sweet. I was really hard on myself mm -hmm. already. Yeah. Um, and so having her to gently guide me through the steps and she had a lot of time to spend with me, which I needed. I needed guidance. Mm -hmm. I needed conversations. I needed 
a, a mentor, a sponsor, a good sponsor that had time for me. And she had that. Um, mm-hmm. and so she, she really, I thank her to this day, every sobriety birthday, I send her a long text and I'm like, thank you so much for spending all that time with me. I know I was not great company, but <laughs> I needed that. Yeah. So she put you to work on the 12 steps right away, huh? She did. And like she said, she said, give me a month. And we were at step five within a month. So had you written out your fourth step before the month mark? Yes. Okay. So you you did your fourth step. What do you remember about doing your fourth step? Was was that, did you find that that was difficult or easy? Uh, what were your concerns when you got to that step? Um, it was hard. I didn't want to dig up all the stuff from the past that I thought, you know, I'm whatever, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It was in the past. Um, I really didn't want to dig all of that up. Um, but I listened, I took every suggestion that she gave uh, every suggestion. Um, and so her suggestion was that I plan my whole weekend to just stay home, turn off my phone and do my fourth step. And so I did that. And I, the, the feelings that come up are not fun to sit with, but she warned me about that. And she said, light a candle, take breaks to breathe, walk your dogs, Hmm. pray. Um, so she gave me suggestions on how to get through those hard feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, and it took me more than one weekend. It took me two weekends actually. Mm -hmm. And then we met, I think it was on a Saturday to do my fifth step. And that was a month later. What was that like for you? Wow. <laughs> um, it was um, humbling. Yeah. Um, very humbling to talk about, um, you know, these deep hurts. And, and then to look at my part of it um, was hard. It was hard. I think that that does get easier with time looking at ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it was painful but I had minimal tears Mm -hmm. and the, the presence of, of my higher power was very near. And I just, you know, I was at peace. And, and when, when we finished it, I felt amazing. And, um, in the book, it it talks about, we'll be able to look others in the eye again. Mm -hmm. And that was so true for me. I remember the next day I went for a walk around the bayou Mm -hmm. And I'm like smiling and I'm looking at people like trying to make eye contact to like say hi. Uh (laughs) And that was not me before I was looking at the ground. Wow. That's so powerful. One of my fondest memories of doing the uh, fifth step, and I've done several of them, but the most powerful part of that particular process is maybe for the first time having somebody sit there and listen non-judgmentally and knowing that irrespective of what I say, whatever the deepest, darkest, most hideous thing I could say is met with understanding and acceptance. That's a feeling I never knew in my life until that point. Yeah, I had I had never experienced that either. Um, I worked my way up to the darker stuff. So at first, you know, I kept it light and I was, you know, testing to see, is she going to freak out? Mm-hmm. Um And she didn't. She just sat there calmly and listened to me. Hmm. And she was so kind Mm -hmm. and understanding. And some of them, she was like, me too. (laughs) And I was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that me too is a powerful statement for a 
listener to A Fifth Step to Make, and uh, I've had that opportunity before, too, and that's so important. So you got through your fifth step, six and seven? Yeah, right after. I went home and did my hour of, you know, meditation and the work that needs to be done and mm-hmm. said my seventh step prayer. Mm-hmm. And then eighth step. Yeah, I sat on that for a little while. Did you? Um yeah, because the first time you do the steps, you've got a, a you know you've got a long list. Yeah, that's true. And so being willing to make all of those amends, um, it took me a, it took me a little while to get there, but I got there. Yeah, and did you work pretty closely with her throughout that process? Oh yeah, yeah, I needed to. And you know, the ninth step, um, making my amends. This was the first time I had worked the steps. I've worked the steps since, um, but this first time I was so terrified. to make those amends. Even after I saw how they went with, you know, the first couple, I was still terrified to make the others. Mm -hmm. Um, But never once have I had a bad experience with amends. Never once. And I've done the steps three times now. That ninth step is so powerful in healing relationships. Mm -hmm. So by the time you got through doing the ninth step and then doing it again and again, how do you feel about the ninth step today, about doing a ninth step amend, if you do find one you need to make? I love it. I have to humble myself. So I got to get over that little hump of pride. Um, but once once I squash that, humble myself and make the approach, I know what's on the other side of it. And there is a spiritual high on the other side mm-hmm. of it. And I'm an alcoholic. I love good highs. So I, I look forward to that part of it. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And all the healing that can go on. And a certain amount of forgiveness and other things. Although, you know, I always have been told and I tell the men that I sponsor with regard to the ninth step to go in with super low expectations. Better to be pleasantly surprised when it goes well, as opposed to completely crushed when you have your expectations so high and they don't forgive you right away or they throw you out or something like that. I've, I've had guys I've sponsored who've tried to make ninth step amends and literally been thrown out or said, don't, you know, don't come see me again ever, that kind of thing. That can be a kind of a hurtful thing to have happen. But it sounds to me like you got through yours without that kind of uh, response from the people you were making your ninth step amends to, huh? Yeah, I, I guess I've been fortunate in that way. And I mean, that that would be really painful to go and admit your wrongs and then have the other person, you know, be resentful toward you or, or mean or spiteful. Um, I, I have not experienced that yet, um, but it's always a possibility. And and my sponsor says all we can do is clean up our side of the street. That's right. That makes me right with my higher power. Mm-hmm. What the other guy says doesn't matter. That's such a smart way to think about it, too. That's exactly in line with the way I think about it as well. So this kind of brings us full circle, uh, Amanda, to the point where we were talking earlier about your service work. And one of the service pieces of service work, what we can do is sponsoring other people. Have you had the experience of sponsoring other women? I have. What's that been like for you? Oh, man, it is the highlight of my life. Um, you know, I have to be careful to not get too excited for mm-hmm. my sponsees um, in case they don't make it. But <laughs> yeah. gosh, what a gift it is to see the light bulb come on. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, every time I'm going to meet with a sponsee, I don't know why this is, 
but I'm like, Oh, I hope they cancel. I hope they cancel. Oh, my selfishness and self-centeredness is coming through. I have so much to do. I hope they cancel. And then they, and then I'll pray, God, please like bring them. I, I really need to see them. Yeah. <laughs> and so they come. And then afterwards, I'm so happy. Like I, I just have a heart full of joy. Nothing brings me as much joy as that. Maybe other than seeing my niece born, like that was pretty awesome. But this is another form of, uh, of life coming to life. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's just so exciting. And I'm so thankful that I, I get to be a part of that and I get to serve God in that way. That's such a powerful statement too. And to have that kind of enthusiasm and joy in the process of sponsoring other people, uh, I don't think it's possible to have that unless you've already gotten it from your sponsor and passing it down the road. Do you have any grand sponsees? Have any of your sponsees started sponsoring other women yet? Not yet, but I'm hopeful that'll happen in the maybe in the new year where my girls are now in the steps. Cool. I'm hoping probably in the new year I'll have a grand sponsee. That's a whole new experience of joy and pleasure as well, to be able to see people doing so well with their own sobriety that they can literally pass it on as being a good sponsor to to somebody else. So it sounds to me, Amanda, that you've had quite a few gifts come up in your life. Can you tell me of any others that kind of stick out at this point that looking back, you might have sold yourself short if you had thought that it wasn't going to happen? What what kind of other gifts have occurred for you since sobriety? Oh, my goodness. There's so many that I wouldn't choose or ask God for what I have today. Mm -hmm. So um, let's see, we can start with my job. Mm -hmm. I have my dream job now. I stepped into the role in May of this year. After a couple years of working those early sobriety jobs, I worked at a treatment center in an Mm -hmm. admin position. Mm -hmm. I really hated it. Yeah. But there was benefit that came out of that. I mean, I, I learned how to manage money better. Um, I had a very supportive team. There was healing there with mm-hmm. uh, women in the workplace. Um, a lot of good came out of that. But um, the job that I that I stepped into is more than what I asked my higher power for. Um, and it, it's something that is deeply meaningful to me. And only God would have known the position was actually created for me, which is crazy <laughs> that someone would create a position for me. Yeah, they saw something in you, didn't they? I They must have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I'm glad they did. <laughs> when you get jobs created for you, that's, uh, that's such a compliment and, and such a great sign of God working in your life that people notice to the extent that they're willing to create a whole job around it. That's marvelous. Yeah. Um, other gifts. Let's see. Um, well, I met this wonderful man um, <laughs> at your meeting. Yes. And uh, again, I wouldn't have chosen him. Um, my picker is off, but um, just the way everything happened and and it, it was totally God. Mm-hmm. We've been dating for over two years now, and he's just a really amazing person. And I love that he works a program um, and we have this in common. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's just a wonderful guy mm-hmm. and um, so sweet and kind and thoughtful and willing to look at himself. And that is the most attractive quality about him. 
Um, which I would have never thought that before I got sober, like, Oh, he's willing to look at himself. Like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Yeah, I get that. That's something that in a lot of ways is kind of special too and unique about Alcoholics Anonymous is that one of the things we need to be doing on an ongoing basis is looking at ourselves. And if we're not looking at ourselves, the people we've surrounded ourselves with are looking at us to reflect back to, to us what we're really doing in our lives. So that's really a that's a that's a marvelous statement. Sounds like God had a hand in that for you as well, huh? Absolutely. Because I remember when you started coming to that meeting for the first time, and he hadn't started coming to that meeting yet, or maybe you must have met him shortly after he started coming to that meeting, huh? Well, he said that he was going to that meeting for a while, and then he stopped, and that must have been when I started going. Oh yeah, and then. And then someone told him that there was an attractive blonde going there. So he decided to come back. (laughs) Well, never let it be said that there aren't a few ulterior motives, though. Knowing the man, I'm sure they were they were very noble and and kind, you know, at the heart of it. So that's a beautiful gift to be able to have somebody else that is working a good AA program. It's it's so Mm -hmm. rare. And, you know, given the number of people who are in the program, who have significant others, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses that are not supportive, or if they're not not supportive, they're ambivalent. To be able to have somebody that you can speak AA speak to has got to be a really comforting feeling. It is. It is. And also, um, you know, when I'm off the beam, he can spot it and call me on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that helps because I can't always see that myself. Um, it helps to have him to be able to spot when, when I'm, when I'm irritable, restless or discontent. And, and it helps when, when he can give me program language. Like if I'm stressing out about, you know, two months from now, or I just recently had a surgery and, um, I had to take narcotics Mm -hmm. and, and I was really worried about it. And he's like, one day at a time, call your sponsor, you know, all of the, are you checking this in with your sponsor? And just having that reinforcement there Mm -hmm. is such a gift. Yeah. Another one of those God things for sure. Well, you know, for someone with three and a half years after what you went through to get to AA, what a blessing it is to have you in the program and what a blessing it is for the program to be in your life. And I've watched you grow and change over the last several years. And to me, there's no greater demonstration of God's working in our lives than someone working a really good AA program. And it sounds to me like that's what you're doing. I mean, I see it when I see you. I see it in your eyes. I see it in your behavior around other people too. And you can always tell how people really are by the way you see them treating other people. And uh, you're so kind and loving to the members of the groups that you and I go to. And you're very receptive to their approach, which is the reason why you've got sponsees and you're working that particular part of the program. So I just love the fact that you and I have had a chance to get to know each other a little bit better today. This is something we haven't done but one of the advantages of doing these interviews is I get to spend an hour, an hour and 10 minutes with people who I love. And I love you. And you're a really special person in my life. And you certainly uh, enhance and brighten up the meetings that we go to together. And I'm sure your other meetings as well. And what I would say to anybody with three and a half years is keep on keeping on. Stay in the middle of the herd. And remember that all of us want you to succeed just as you want the people around you to succeed. And uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Wow. Thank you, Howard. That was so kind. Um, 
and you are such a blessing to the program as well. I just love your shares and your heart and how you love people and you're not scared to say it. And I love you too, Howard. Thank you. That means a lot to me. (laughs) Thanks. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Visit my website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 